0: Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com.
1: I think now we have to rebuild commitment to the idea of public, that there are things that we need to do together And those things can only be done if we do them together.
0: That's Donald Cohen, Executive Director of In the Public Interest, a national policy group focusing on the need to reclaim the public commons and the core values of protecting and enhancing our sovereign public interests. Hello and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree. Today, we're going to take a good hard look at the trends underway worldwide to hand over control of public assets to private interests. Donald's new book is titled The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Later in the program, we'll talk with author Matt Arrett about how a global corporate agenda is emerging to mainstream that approach everywhere. And Ellen has a powerful new article out that discusses how that agenda includes corporatizing our natural assets. Strikingly important stuff. We hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get right into it now with Ellen. That's Donald Cohen, Executive Director of In the Public Interest, a national policy group focusing on the need to reclaim the public commons and the core values of protecting and enhancing our sovereign public interests. Hello and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree. Today we're going to take a good hard look at the trends underway worldwide to hand over control of public assets to private interests. Donald's new book is titled The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Later in the program, we'll talk with author Matt Arrett about how a global corporate agenda is emerging to mainstream that approach everywhere. And Ellen has a powerful new article out that discusses how that agenda includes corporatizing our natural assets. Strikingly important stuff. We hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get right into it now with Ellen.
2: Thanks, Walt. I've actually written two articles since our last show. One was on central bank digital currencies, and one is on the financialization of nature. I wrote the one on central bank digital currencies because it's a rather hot topic at the moment, controversial topic. Uh, Sally Overoma, who is the nominee for uh, controller of the currency by President Biden, wrote a paper on it, and it has provoked some controversy. So, most people don't read academic papers. So, I thought I would read it and uh, summarize what it said basically. And I actually thought she made a good case for a central bank digital currency. I know that they're very controversial and I understand the downsides. The concern is that. If all of our money is with the central bank, then the central bank can turn it off. If you know, if they have our other data as well, maybe medical data, maybe social media, et cetera, that those are all the things you hear people being concerned about. And that if you don't have cash as an alternative, then you can be turned off for whatever kind of infringements they decide to turn you off for. But uh, Omarova does, uh, I think she anticipated that because she said that we should keep cash as um, legal tender and that cash should be made readily available on demand when people want it. So that would pretty much fix that, I think, if you can keep your cash. And also people are concerned that they're going to be forced to bank at the central bank. And she said, no, you, you, you can do your actual banking at your local community bank, or we would recommend our local public bank. And she said that banking, it would change banking as we know it. And uh, that was considered controversial. But as she explained, she didn't mean that private banks would go away. She just meant that they would be required to do what they purport to be doing already, which is acting merely as intermediaries. They say that they take in deposits and they lend them back out again and they are just the middleman. Uh, But as we know, as the Bank of England has confirmed among other authorities, uh, banks do not lend their deposits. They actually create deposits when they make loans. So they actually make well over 90% of our circulating money supply, private banks do. So if we had a central bank set up the way that Omerover writes about it, it would be in the hands of the generating the national currency would be in the hands of the public. So that that is the basic American system of the American colonists who issued their own, uh, their local governments issued their own uh, currency uh, and of Alexander Hamilton and Abraham Lincoln who issued greenbacks directly so we would be really be returning to our roots, and our money would be generated not by private banks, not by Wall Street, but by the central bank. Now, the issue is, of course, in many people's minds, maybe including mine, uh, whether the central bank really is acting on on behalf of the public. But but she is she set, made out a good case for assuming that premise for. And many problems that could be uh, fixed by having a central bank digital currency. For example, you would you would eliminate bank runs because the central bank can't run out of liquidity. You would eliminate bail-ins, which were a requirement under the um, Dodd-Frank Act of the 2010 Banking Act of r- required that If a too big to fail bank went bankrupt, it was supposed to turn its deposit or its creditors' money, including its depositors, into capital to recapitalize itself. So you would avoid that necessity. Uh, You would avoid too big to fail, the whole problem of too big to fail and uh, the need for stress tests. (laughs) You would solve the problem of the unbanked and underbanked because they would have free accounts at the central bank. And the problem of getting payments to them, for example, uh, emergency relief payments like we had in 2020, that could be done expeditiously through the central bank. And what's um, good from our point of view, the public banking point of view, uh, it would fund what she calls the National Investment Authority but it could just as well be the National Infrastructure Bank that we've been promoting. So it'd be cheap liquidity for a, a public bank, a development bank or infrastructure bank, whatever you want to call it, a public institution that would do build things, to do all the things that the public requires. And this, this is what the Chinese do right now. And they are obviously running circles around us. We should have the same sort of setup. So there are many things to recommend it. <laughs> um, my other article was on the, it was actually based on an article by Whitney Webb, who does brilliant research to my mind, on a new asset class formed by the New York Stock Exchange called Natural asset companies. So these are companies, the idea is supposedly to conserve nature, but they're they're obviously intended to make a profit. They're trading on the New York Stock Exchange, and they're promoted as being very profitable. This came out just in time for COP26 and COP15. Everybody's heard of COP26, I think, which was the event that just happened in Glasgow, which is all about Uh, climate change. But COP15 was before that, it was a virtual event, and it was about biodiversity. And one of the mandates of COP15 is to have a a requirement, anyway, to have 30% of the land and water of the earth, like 30% of the planet under conservation by 2030, 30 by 30, it's called. So that's a huge amount of land and water and the critics say that it could displace or dispossess as many as 300 million people. These would be largely indigenous but also just local farmers like in the U.S. In the U.S. currently um, that requirement's also in a, an executive order from January by the president. Uh, the 30 by 30 provision is in there. So in the U.S., of the land currently is under what's considered under conservation. So to get the other 18% would take land area the size of two Texases by 2030. So that's a lot of land. And of course, many areas are protesting this because basically it means probably just taking the land one way or another, maybe by eminent domain. But the critics say there is no constitutional provision for that. The federal government doesn't really have the power to take it by eminent domain. But a big investment company, a natural asset company, for example, like BlackRock, which is quite excited about this idea, apparently, could just buy the land. And now we have the situation where Uh, Something like 30% 30 of the country is in serious economic distress. So people that can't afford whatever their farms anymore. And BlackRock would just have to, Larry Fink is the CEO, and he's apparently excited about this idea. He could just buy up, you know, make them an offer they can't refuse. That's exactly what they did with all these homes that were turned into rentals. Bill Gates is another big investor who is now the largest agricultural land owner in the U.S. So anybody with big money could basically buy up huge chunks of property and call them natural asset, natural assets. And clearly, if they're going to turn a profit, they're going to be exploiting this property in some way they're going to be using the resources i mean you can't turn a property just just by watching over it and keeping burglars out or something so i'll be discussing that more with um, our upcoming interview with matt and we'll be discussing privatization of everything with our interview with donald cohen
0: Among the many systemic threats facing today's America, from corporate takeover of democratic power by co-opting our national political parties, to the dissipation of our common interest and the commons itself, Americans today are facing really long odds of wresting control back from the corporate hands that have gradually and very effectively absconding with the gifts of our national inheritance. That trend is most commonly seen in the privatization of public assets and public purposes. Our guest today has just published a new book on that subject, a subject that he has been championing for years. And the book is called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. So we're pleased to have Donald Cohen, the executive director of In the Public Interest, which is a nonprofit resource that has been focusing on the striking and even appalling trajectory of privatization. He's the founder and executive director again of the In the Public Interest, uh, a policy center. And uh, a very valuable component of the public conversation about where we're going to take America next. So, Donald, welcome very much to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. And and here's Ellen.
2: Hi, Don. Great to be talking to you. Uh, So, what I particularly like in your book is solutions. I mean, we're always all about solutions. But first, I'll just start with the the concept here. So you say um, privatization is the transfer of control over public goods to private private hands. So how do you define public goods, or
1: what do we call public goods? Well, you know, there are uh, there economists have very specific uh, definitions uh, in in the literature. We which which. Uh, we don't use. We use in the book a democratic conception of public goods, uh, meaning a couple of things. One is those things that we all need to survive, to thrive, to protect the planet that you know we can't live without. Um, both for us, for us as individuals, and us as a society, because we are interdependent. And and why I say democratic is because we can decide as a democracy what those should be. For example, healthcare. There is no logical reason. That any one individual should have lower quality health care, less access to health care, less health care than anyone else. We can decide that everyone gets the same, you know, as a question of democracy, as a question of morality, as a question of good economics for all the, and good society. Knowledge, everyone should have access to knowledge, everyone should have access to water, safe food. There are some fundamentals that we can, we can decide as a nation what should be available to
0: all. So that's how we think about it. The capitalist mindset, of course, seems to be a cultural issue that Americans have about that they're really on our own and and, and why shouldn't people <laughs> profitize privatize the the commons uh, if that's an opportunity that they can take.
2: Yeah, uh, and you get the. I think you mentioned that um, if the if the market can't make a make a profit off it then it's considered public. <laughs> well, that's the reason that they say that government can't run a business because they don't give us any businesses that are actually profitable. Uh-huh. They give us the things that are necessarily unprofitable. And once they figure out it is profitable, they want to take it over like the post office.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of folks who say that the role of government, you know, government should step in when markets fail. I completely, and that's a very common viewpoint within the academy, within an intellectual class and all that. Mm-hmm. I completely disagree. I think We need the role of, you know, that there are things that we're talking about, these public goods that are not products of market failure, they're market inappropriate, it's just the wrong tool. It's just Mm -hmm. the wrong vehicle to provide if you want universal access to healthcare, if you want to be able to send a stamp, you know, at the same cost, a forever stamp to any corner of the country at the same price, the market simply can't do that private businesses perhaps could play a role in some of this stuff, but that's not the point. The point is if you put it in the market, you, you know, markets exclude and public goods should be available to all.
2: Yeah. Well, some, a lot of people, most people these days don't trust government. I mean, that's what they say about public banks. You want to hand this over to the, you know, the government. Well, no, we want to hand it over to the people through their representative government, but how do you distinguish? I mean, we don't, Trust the private market either. I mean, where does I know you've given examples, but where does where has the private market gone wrong when we hand things to them that should be public goods? Well, um,
1: in a in a few ways. Um, one is that if you hand if a private company takes a prison or a water system and runs it, then there are dollars, actual real dollars, that are going to be spent on. Profits are returned to shareholders on a high executive compensation packages. Some of these large corporations are very high, on lobbying expenses, on, on campaign contributions or other business expenses. Every one of those dollars is a dollar that's not being provided, and that's not being that's not going to the service, that's not going to, to provide clean water, or that's not putting you know educational programs in prisons or what have you. So that's the first thing that goes wrong. The the second thing that goes wrong is when we sign contracts or long term agreements, those contracts are very rigid and we embed the interest of those those companies, which they have legitimate interests. It's just we embed their interest in the delivery. So I'll give you an example better to say it. So private prisons in the contract have, in lots and lots and lots of them, have bed guarantees, either keep the beds filled or pay anyway. Now, they could pay anyway and reduce populations, but that puts their interests into, you know, contract, you know, we are contractually, you know, connecting ourselves to their interests, which are to keep more heads in beds in a prison, right? They have legitimate interests, businesses in concept. They sell things, okay? They want to sell more stuff. We are, that always doesn't work in our favor. We don't want to sell more water, you know, often we want to conserve water. So you can kind of go down the list. So I think it's really important to understand what their interests are. It's to sell and their purposes is to sell things.
2: And we don't want more criminals. So We don't want want
1: more criminals, but we also want, you know, rehabilitation. We want things that we want mental health services. We want a whole lot of Mm -hmm. things that would reduce the populations of prisons that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you take those dollars out, that's money you don't have to do those things.
2: Right. Um, I was I was reading about the the uh, Chicago, what you wrote about the Chicago problem with the parking meters. And they've got like a 75 year contract to guarantee the profits of the I think it was Goldman Sachs was it that bought it? Um, No, um, uh,
1: the other one. But one of the major Wall Street companies, Morgan Stanley, I think it was Morgan Stanley. It was Morgan Morgan
2: Stanley. Sorry
1: and a national parking company, and a sovereign wealth fund, a, you know, a, a government, a country fund from the Middle East, one of the countries in the Middle East. And they, in, in 2009, when the city was desperate for cash, remember the recession, they offered the city a $1.1 billion upfront in exchange for the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years, and this was in 2009. So two things, and then they, they voted on it, made it happen very, within days, very quickly, they were desperate. What became true after the fact is one is that it was a stupid way to borrow money on your future parking meter, you know, uh, you know, revenues. Who knows if we're going to be driving, et cetera. But the worst part is that if now the city uh, through, you know, through the life of the contract wants to eliminate parking spots for a bike lane, for a bus, for a you know a dedicated bus lane, for a street mall, for all sorts of reasons, they have to buy the spots back at the future value, which means they don't do it. In many cases, because they just don't have that kind of money sitting around, that's you know that's a constraint on democracy, our ability to make decisions, and the city level. It's land use, transportation, housing, climate, like virtually every you know area of municipal governments. They are constrained by that deal.
2: Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the Trans-Pacific Partnership with uh, where you had deals between supposed to have deals between foreign governments and. Foreign companies and the government guaranteed the profits of the company, no matter what how the conditions change. So with right. that didn't pass on a national level, but or international level, but. the but um, they're still doing it on a national level and you can, they can, I guess they can take their contracts to a private court. Is that right? Or to an arbitrator as opposed to.
1: Yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not as familiar with the. It depends the, on
2: the contract, right. I suppose. But, but, right. the,
1: but the interesting thing about the Chicago is because, you know, we just, you know, there was just an infrastructure bill passed and signed by the president and all that. So there's going to be a lot of money flowing for infrastructure and a lot of interest in public, these public private partnerships, you know, that are essentially privatization. And even though the Chicago deal is horrible, everybody in the world, everybody in the country, every mayor knows it was a terrible deal. But mm-hmm. the features of that deal are common. And, and I always think it's worthwhile to think about it from the business perspective. We sign a contract and you change the deal, pay us. It's just not our problem. <laughs> it's just not, mm-hmm. you know, It's just not in the interest of democracy to tie our hands to them. But I get where they're coming from. We made a deal we expected to profit given this and this and this we expected to be able we expected to be able to spend this and this and this, and we no longer you know, can do that because you've passed a law that requires something else. That's, that's at, at its core. That's the problem. When you get into partnership with private interests, mm-hmm. we have to protect them. And we should. Well, and you do, you
2: do want to preserve the law of contracts. I mean, that's part of, if, if we don't have the law of contracts then we don't have the bill of rights and the constitution and I mean we do we do need yeah. a legal structure so um, getting to your solutions you had six good solutions here uh,
1: you know I think and these are solutions at the you know at some level at the idea level because the, the book is called the privatization of everything so it covers a pretty broad range of things so I think there are some, values and, and information that we need to have at first, which I think is really important. So the first is that we need to define who and what the public is, right? When, and we're very clear, the public is everybody. You know, the government's an institution. Governments do good things, bad things, people get in, they're either corrupt or they're incompetent or they're just, it's just complicated and it's hard. And so things, you know, the world's a complicated place, but we need to be very clear what, the, what what's in the public interest. And what the public purpose is, and we ought to be super clear that public means all. I mean, we have a history of exclusion and segregation and uh, uh, you know, and it, it, you know it, and, and that's part of the problem. It's easy to privatize things when it's only some and it's only uh, so that's the first, you know first I think and really in most step, we have to really establish. If healthcare is a public good, then everybody, regardless of position, geography, identity, all that. The second, as as I sort of mentioned, is that we should be able to decide what are public goods and what or, you know what are not. You know what are universally accessible things, available things. Um, pretty straightforward. That's a democratic process, not a market process. The third is you know some of these things sound so obvious, but it's it, you know when you get into politics, it's not. Is that we have to pay for things. Right. So it's really important to remember because we get into debates about taxes and low taxes and high taxes and government waste and corporate profits and all that. But the most important fact is you have to pay for the things that you that we want. No questions. Second point there, though, is there's, there's no, no free lunch There's no free lunch <laughs> yeah. And the second most important part of that is there's only one place to get that money. Us. There's no other place. We have to pay for things. Then the only question becomes is when do we pay? Do we pay early and prevent crises and disasters? Do we pay late and pay, and then all will pay more, you know, in lots of ways. And then of course, who pays and how, you know, we believe in progressive taxation. We don't pay to use the road to go to the grocery store. Right. So which is make, we pay through taxes. Um, and that's because in the end, I, you know, I, you know, from a conceptually, it's because we think it's important that everybody be able to get to the grocery store. So we'll pay together so that everyone can use it. Even if you don't have a car, and even if you don't use it. You, um, the same is true of education. The same is true of other things. We can do that for other things. There are places around the country that are starting to, cities around the country starting to provide, um, offer free bus and transit fare. Instead of, instead of picking up, you know, what you pay to, to get on the bus or the, or the subway, it's just all free. We still have to pay for it, but we can pay through taxes because we it, it is in all of our interest for people to be able to move around. That that's It's not just a consumer product. It's not just a commodity.
2: We, um, would, we would have another idea for how we can pay for it, but <laughs> I won't go into that. Well, Why there's we can... plenty
1: of ideas. There's lots of ideas, but <laughs> I just think it's always important. You know, it's always us. There's nobody else out there. Even if it's Wall Street, it's us. You know, we, we all, we're, you know. um. The other thing that I think gets to some of the issues that you work on, and we, we say in the book, don't let the market, don't let the free market limit freedom. Um, and really, what we mean, you know, in but banking, the banking industry, has, as you know better than I, have fought the idea of public banking because it would, you know, compete with their ability to make a profit. The same thing is true with broadband. As we go into more and more broadband, companies have passed, you know, worked to use their influence to pass laws to prevent mm-hmm. cities. From establishing municipal broadband as competitors, same is true with um, tax filing. Uh, TurboTax, you know, into it the company that owns TurboTax, they have essentially prevented the government, you know, the, the IRS, from e- making available easy online free uh, tax filing. Most of us is free, and then the same thing with weather. We all use the weather apps on our phone or our thing, but the, all every bit of data. That those weather apps use comes from public, you know, is public. It comes from the weather satellites and and, and our global uh, relationship relationships with other countries. It's a free. It's all completely free, but the companies AccuWeather, uh, probably you know, a few of the others have you know been able to use their influence to pass rules to prevent the national weather services from service from offering their own app or directly providing uh, you know things to the public. So they don't want the competition and we should be able to do that. It's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's our stuff. And, you know, and you can kind of go down the list. Um, I'll mention, and then a couple of things I'll mention, we, you know, of course, we, what I would say is we don't never contract for things. There's going to be contra- all kinds of public contracts for things. That's not the issue. The issue is, I mean, in electricity, electricity, there's public electricity. There's not you know, provided there's investor owned companies that are electricity, but even the investor owned are publicly regulated. So, whatever is in the public has to be, you know, we need standards. We need cops on the beat to make sure those standards are enforced, whether provided publicly or privately. That's essential because, you know, the world's a complicated place. So, we're not going to be able to figure out every particular service and every you know, great detail, but we can say everyone had to have basic standards and, and we got to make sure that they're covered. That's a fundamental public role. And then finally, is what you know, I call it surface the state. Um, this, you know, the government services are both ubiquitous and invisible. It's kind of a contradict. It's kind of a paradox. We don't think about the government when we turn on the you know, government service or a public service, when we turn on the tap, we don't think of it when we look at the paint on our wall and, re- you know, because it used to have lead in it and because of public action, it no longer has lead. it's safer now. So we need to figure out how to lift up that there is public all around us. And it's, and a lot of it's actually pretty important and pretty good. Um, I actually think it's sort of a miracle that I turn on the tap and water comes out of it. Yeah. I, water I, goes. I, was, I think it's kind of rem- remarkable. So again, yeah, I've
2: written about primary water and the problems in Africa and, you know, having to carry this stuff for miles on your head. <laughs>
1: that's right. It's sort of a <laughs> miracle, and, and it's literally, it is a public service.
2: And, and we so, keep having threats now, you know, that they might or that the power might get shut off or whatever. And you realize that we are a a herd animal. I mean, we're totally interdependent with each other. We've got supply chain problems and all that. And so, like we've had power failures here. And then you have to start thinking, well, what if it goes on longer? What am I going to need to survive? Even if you hole up in your own house and think, well, I don't really need anybody, you need. Yep. things delivered or you yeah, you definitely need water. And yeah. <laughs> and, I, and
1: I think the point you make about interdependence, we are interdependent, whether we admit it or like it or want it or not. I mean, COVID is a good example. There are people who believe that they don't, you know, shouldn't have to wear a mask and they shouldn't have to get vaccinated. And, you know, there's a clear debate that we're in the middle of, but we, you know, it's pretty, it should be pretty clear to most of us that the health of all of us depends on the health of each of us. So therefore, we, you know, we, you, you can't deny that someone can spread the disease, and so it's in our interest for everyone to be healthy. It's in our interest for every child, whether you have kids or not, to be educated in a in a quality school. It's just, it's not just about the parent wanting to get a good education for their kid. We all need that kid to be educated.
2: It seems to me what what we need is some sort of official energy that actually decides. But we don't want like a Department of Truth because that sounds an awful lot like... No, we
1: want want democratic processes that help us discern and decide. Ultimately, you have to decide. We want to be data-driven to some extent. you know We we want to have access to to information and data and facts. But in the end, we have to... Freedom of
2: speech, all those things that are freedom of assembly, et cetera. We need all of that in order to share ideas and... If we're going to be, if we are going to have more um, accountability, awareness, sunshine, et cetera, we have to have free free speech. That's right. I
1: mean, yeah. although you, you mentioned climate, the, you know, the debate between climate science, it's, that's I don't believe that's that simple. I'm sure you don't either. There have been millions, probably billions of dollars spent by oil companies and others to, you know, to create an alternative set of facts around climate change. It was not in their interest. You know, oil companies need to sell oil, period. You know, action on climate change means they might be able to sell less oil and make less money. And they have worked to, you know, you know, have delayed our action for many years. That's pure self-interest. That's pure self-interest that's gotten in our way.
0: And you talk about the, the destruction, really, of public education and how that has been so foundational to this deterioration. The, of community, of sense of common purpose and understanding. Did you say it was cre- creative destruction? Is actually just destruction? It, it's, say a little bit about that, if you would. I think that we're suffering. We're suffering the, we're suffering, uh, the, the uh, result of a lack of in, investment in in, uh, in education. So. Um... So absolutely. So
1: in education right now, there's a couple of things going on. There's the growth of charter schools has been a real, uh, you know, they're sort of being supercharged in the last five, 10 years. Charter schools originally, the original idea came out of a a teacher's union. Let's create little small laboratories of innovation, figure out new ideas, share those ideas. You know, educating is hard. What it has become is the creation of a parallel education system, Right. And the idea, so, and that's where they want to go. There are people who are advocating for the you know, more and more charter schools that really want to get rid of the public education system. What they believe, let's say, um, there are profiteers in there, but others are true believers. They believe that, you know, people should just compete, you know, schools should compete for our business, you know, uh, whether we are, you know, for the for the business of parent, uh, of parents choosing their schools and kids choosing their schools. The problem with that is that in competition and in markets, there's winners and losers. So in the case of, you know, I'm I'm channeling the the charter school growth advocates. Um, What they'll say is, okay, if a school's no good, parents won't choose it, it will close. Now, that may be fine for a restaurant (laughs) um, or, you know, a local shop, but that's not fine for a school one is that we're saying it's okay some are going to fail and that's just the way it goes never mind the disruption on the families and the kids never mind the the orientation that we need to make every school succeed not let the market determine which should fail and let the win you know let you know survival of the fittest let the you know the the others succeed, grow and thrive so i think that's really what we mean in that chapter is that the market is the wrong instrument because competition in that case, creates all sorts of distortions. I'll give you a couple couple of specifics. Well, um, so it's in a charter, school, you know, because this is how it's working now. And how do parents choose? They look at the school. They look at test scores. Okay. So what some charter schools do is they have creative ways to to screen out the kids that will bring their test scores down, and to push out kids that will push their that will that will push their test scores down. All mostly legal, but you know, subtle. Like you ought to go here. It's not there. Um, so it creates incentives
0: in the system to exclude, again, that same competition. The, the mindset that has to change for people to re-experience or reacquaint themselves with this inheritance uh, common you know, where is that going to come from, Donald? For example, in the case of uh, in, the, in the public interest, how are you guys approaching strategically the work that lies ahead uh, to deal with the environment we're in? um that's a very
1: good and deep question so (laughs) one is um i mean we've you have to defend so we help folks around the country fight efforts to take over public goods and services we help you know with policy with campaign with the sort of research with a variety of things always you know because remember huge multinational corporations are out there knocking on doors around the country saying we'll take this problem off your hands Um, And, you know, if you're running a city, you know, that could be kind of appealing. So that's the first thing we, the second thing is we really believe we need a movement for the public good or for the common good. And the, just, you know, I've thought for many years that our we had to figure out how to rebuild trust in government is the most important thing we have to do. I actually don't believe that exactly anymore. I think now we have to rebuild commitment to the idea of public, that there are things that we need to do together and those things can only be done if we do them together. Then our job is to make government as good as it can be, constantly reforming it, constantly investing in it, to you know, to achieve the you know, to head in that direction towards the, you know, towards those aspirational goals. I think that's critical. There are twenty million people who work for government and government institutions in America, local, state. They ought to be advocates for, um, you know, what they do. You know, they're mostly under attack. Conservatives attack public workers. They ought to be telling people what they do and the, the you know the the people they help every day, the thing they go to work and, and provide, you know, what service they provide for people. You know that we're in an environment of attack where they where they feel not able to do that. Well, that's good. I mean,
2: the problem it's I mean, we have political problems. They even. It's just hard to get a a truly representative government. Nobody, many people don't feel that the people that supposedly are representing them are not really representing their interests. And we haven't really figured that out, I don't think. It's great that you're working on it. You're doing great work there. Thank you very much.
1: Well, I mean, we're not going to deal with campaign fan. I mean, there's not one thing, right? We have to figure out how to get the overwhelming influence of money out of politics and that's just not just campaign contributions that's lobbying that's a, there's a sort of a set of things that happen there the, you know the, yeah. the more wealth uh more power and wealth get concentrated the more influence they have we have to figure out how to break that logjam and that's not going to be simple but it's it, but it needs to be done
2: yeah well it's great you've shown a light on all these issues <laughs> so thank you very much
0: yeah i appreciate you having me It it seems like it's coming back to this uh, this time of a a, a rediscovering personal integrity as citizens, you know that that our voice matters and that. And that we speak up for the public, speak up for the public good, and and the and the public resources, and our responsibility to each other. I know that sounds socialistic, but they use that as a cudgel against just that thing, you know, to to lock people into, uh, oh my, you know, the the violation of the American myth of independence and strength. So what you're doing and and how you're bringing this forward. Uh, thank you, Donald, uh, and uh, thank you to uh, ITPI. Uh, in the public interest as well, uh, for all that we uh, we march on together, of course, with the public banking movement, and Mm -hmm. and also feel that uh, that this needs to be a movement, where we where we realize that this is our money, uh, and that this is our world. Uh, So, uh, so on we go. Yep, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I know you are, and 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 thank you very much for writing the book. Congratulations on getting that out. Uh, good luck with it. We will certainly do our part to to talk on uh, talk about it and focus uh, on it and make it available to our audience. And, and we urge people to, if they're going to purchase
1: a copy, to, pur- <laughs> to purchase from their local independent bookstore. We'd like to really support independent bookstores um,
0: through this, and so we're really urging people to do that. That's great. And it will. It, and is it available generally now? But apparently, it's already in stores. So yes, I guess so. Very good. And uh, what about uh, the ITPI website? How can people find out more about uh, In the Public Interest?
1: It's uh, www.inthepublicinterest.org. Very straightforward. Simple there's enough. A mailing list you could get on. We, you know, we have low volume ma- emails. It's not high volume. And there's a lot of information on, you know, on all public sectors, schools yep. and prisons and roads and bridges. And you just kind of go down the list because it's, you know, we need all
0: this stuff. Yeah. I really liked how you uh, put this in economic terms so that we realize how what's fundamental and what's operative here. So, well, Donald Cohen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you. And thanks again for the book. Yep. Likewise. <laughs>
2: It's my pleasure to be speaking again with uh, Matt Herrett, who is a very prolific author and speaker in Canada, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. Um, It's so great to talk to you, Matt. Uh, We interviewed you earlier on your book just out called The Clash of Two Americas, Volume 1, The Unfinished Symphony, and now you're out with Volume 2, which I want to spend a whole a longer interview on, we just have a few minutes right now. But um, today I want to wrap up with, uh, we just discussed the privatization of everything on a national level, but you've written it, you wrote an article called Davos billionaires want to save the planet. Why don't developing countries trust them? So it's the privatization on on the global level. So can you explain who the Davos billionaires are and why uh, developing countries don't trust them?
3: Yeah, most certainly. And I know we have a limited time frame, so I'll try to compress as much as I can. Um, I was actually inspired by your article in Whitney Webb's work um, when I wanted to dig in and give it my own little my own little interpretation uh, or, you know, uh, analysis. But um the, the the when I refer to Davos crowd, for those who don't know, I'm referring to those who frequent the World Economic Forum um, summit that occurs every year. And in the last you know 12 13 months, the term Great Reset has been uh, generated by figures around Klaus Schwab. Um, one of the co-founders of the Great Reset Initiative was also Prince Charles. Mark Carney, the former Goldman Sachs man who became the, the governor of the Bank of England, who spearheaded COP26 and many other things. And um, and the idea of um, stakeholder capitalism, which this group also put forth as like the idea of how do you arrange and manage the post-COVID world order, um, and the term stakeholder capitalism was given as a term, which is, it's an old idea, but, you know, it's basically, I, I think of it as technocratic feudalism or oligarchical, uh, man- you know, management. But uh, basically, the, the idea is nation states, sovereign nation states in this in th- this worldview of these, you know, um, uber elite as they think of themselves, or, or as Samuel P. Huntington called them, the golden collar class, um, they, they see sovereign nation states as being obsolete um, relics of the old industrial era. Um, and now we're entering the post-industrial post-nation state era, where it is the stakeholders who must manage um, the system, the, the rules based order from above nation states, because the only the enlightened elite um, who manage mostly the private sector, high finance, high, you know, multinational corporations have the enlightened understanding of the science of human economics um, and, and sovereign nation states are just always, this is what they say, naturally selfish, warlike, uh, uh, you know, prejudiced. So they're, they're not we can't tolerate these things anymore. And this basically means, okay, you've got the 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 those who have clout. So the stakeholders of the system are those who represent the the Fortune 500 companies, the the big tech, big social media uh, conglomerates. Those are the ones who have a stake in the system, and they should be the ones to then manage and decide what the system is going to be, who's going to use the resources. Um, and so coming out of Mark Carney, and people think, oh well, maybe Mark Carney let go of his Goldman Sachs. You know investment banker ways now he's really along with all of these other people they just really care about nature and that's why they want to you know allocate 30 percent of the world for protection by 2030 that's both in the us under biden's executive order but also for the world maybe they just really care about africa and south america and they just care about nature and it's like no no what you see right now and, and you did it really well and whitney webb did it well with your articles um on the issue of the intrinsic exchange rate, on the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, with which Lynn de Rothschild, uh, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild set up, which is merged with the Vatican, um, which is basically this grouping of, you know, representing 60 or 30 or $60 trillion of capital um, that want to buy up, or at least um, make capitalism virtuous and green. And, and And the idea is to create a new type of economic system where we're putting, dollar values on taking um, resources in Africa or environment ecosystems, taking them out of, out of uh, use of human development. So basically telling the Africans who live in abject poverty, 15,000 children died to, will die today of, of starvation in Africa because they don't have enough electricity. They don't have enough food production, but we're telling them the resources under your the surface of your land, the coal, the oil, other things um, those you're not allowed to use for your development to end hunger. That was okay for us to use while we were going through our, our growth process, but not for you, because now we know that that causes nature to to hurt. And we're gonna put money, we're gonna give the right to control that land. Is it gonna be you as a, as a selfish nation state of Nigeria or or Brazil? No, we're gonna allow p- new private green company uh, corporations under these new um, you know Wall Street stock exchange type of of uh, games like BlackRock to go in and buy up that ecosystem. And then that will, will create new values for how much these ecosystems will be untouched. And the more they're untouched, the more money you will get um, for your assets, this new asset class. Now, will they actually abide by that? I don't think so. I think that these companies are probably going to use their control of these zones for cobalt mining and other you know, destructive things that are gonna hurt nature anyway. And they'll just be masquerading behind veneers of ver- green virtue, but they don't care about nature at all, so.
2: Yeah, I, I've seen where, the, uh, so the 30 by 30 includes the oceans, and um, because they don't have enough um, lithium for for all the needs for green energy, they'll be going in and, and uh, scraping the bottom of the ocean, which is a great source of lithium, but the 30 by 30 is part of the biodiversity mandates. Well, you're going to just wipe out biodiversity in the bottom of the ocean by scraping the bottom of the ocean. So yeah, uh, yeah, the, no. and, but they'll be able to claim that it's that it's um, something about conservation because because it will be how they will affect the carbon dioxide and I, I won't go into that, but <laughs> I totally disagree with that whole position. Anyway, <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. and I, I mean, I think the, 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 the amount of control that we're, we're allowing for these private supranational institutions to control the regulatory bodies, oversight bodies, as well as the actual proprietary controls of the land and the water zones in question um, will make it much more easy for them to get by and do whatever they want to uh, destructively hurt coral reefs and other things through mining and, and what have you. And there's going to be just no oversight whatsoever. So they could still project when people turn on their, their virtual or alternative reality headset to, to have a a digital image of Zuckerberg telling them what the news is um, in a, in a, you know, virtual boardroom or something. I don't know. Uh, They will just, people will just not know what's actually going on. You would only be, if you were a poor person living in one of these countries, suffering the consequences that you would know, but in, in their uh, feudal worldview. Those people don't matter. Um, and we're not even talking about, you know, when I when you look at the Wall Street Stock Exchange, and I know we, we probably should wrap this up because there's a limited amount of time, but, you know, you look at what they've already been doing, like there's that picture of Raul Reyes, the second in command of the FARC uh, guerrillas in, in Colombia, right, in 1999, who, which is a narco-terrorist organization having an embrace with the uh, president of, Nat, of the Wall Street Stock Exchange when they wanted the FARC guerrilla narco- uh, profits to be invested in Wall Street, and where were the were the far guerrillas with many other narco terrorist groups all over South America, all over Africa? Where do they? Where are their home bases? Where do they train? Where do they live? It's in these these nature reserves that are privatized nature reserves, usually on the border of countries where these they're given sanctuary to regroup and then conduct warfare, asymmetrical warfare against nation states, on behalf of who? So. You know, there's this whole reality of how empire works, which people are, I think, just a little bit too, they've been kept illiterate to the nature and and language of empire. So they fall for these sorts of very, these things that you should be able to see through much more easily. Um, So, again, you've done a really great job in your article um, and and your work on on shedding light onto some of these shadow creatures. And that's great. And I I hope that this little short seven minute blip here was (laughs) useful to, to shake people up a little bit. (laughs)
2: yeah no thanks very much uh you've done great work and i'm really looking forward to discussing your new book uh hopefully on our our next show um so thank you very much i've been speaking with uh, matthew Arrett, uh editor-in-chief of the canadian patriot review and the author uh, of his latest book is the clash of two americas volume two the unfinished symphony awesome thanks thanks bye
0: bye Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting EllenBrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Money!